Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Luke, book of Luke chapter 1. I am so encouraged just to see that row of people. I, I want to reiterate what Ryan said. This is a gr- incredible, these are incredible families, incredible people that love the Lord, and as Ryan said, have committed to be a part of this local church, uh, not just in attendance, but in in putting their name down and saying, we belong to this body. And that's just so encouraging to, to me and my soul. And I, it's, it's a joy to welcome you all. Uh, so this morning we begin in Luke chapter 1. And I, I was recently reflecting on the uniqueness of Thanksgiving. Right? It, it's a holiday. It, it's always dropped right in the middle of the work week. Uh, it has its own rituals like turkey and hot dishes and football and parades, and, and yet it has none of the buildup or anticipation of Christmas. Like, we don't kick off November anticipating and celebrating the coming Thanksgiving day. We don't have curated Thanksgiving playlists on Spotify that we start playing early in October, right? Uh, another way of saying that is there's something unique about Christmas and this Christmas season. There, there are certain traditions, certain rituals and and liturgies that we follow every year this time of year, like hanging the lights or or decorating the house or or playing certain albums, like the Andy Williams Christmas album, which is the greatest Christmas album, and I don't make those rules, it's just how it is, watching certain movies, opening certain presents at specific times, on specific days, at specific nights, in specific orders, and you understand, right? Your family has traditions, my family has traditions, but historically, the church has also followed a liturgical calendar throughout the year, and, and we launched this morning, this season of Advent. Now, Advent, as, as I'm sure you're aware, comes from the Latin word meaning coming. And for centuries, the church has set apart the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day as days to reflect on and anticipate the coming of Christ both 2,000 years ago in his birth and his future coming again. And traditionally, those four Sundays, they each have their own themes. The first Sunday, hope, peace, joy, and then finally love. And this, this really is the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? But have you ever paused and considered this question, why winter? If we're celebrating the birth of Christ, why are we doing this in the dead of winter? Why not in spring when nature is blooming and coming alive? And and why not summer when we can go outside and actually go outside and enjoy this, the abundant natural world? But why winter when everything's cold and dead and, and frozen? Christina Rossetti's famous Christmas poem describes the setting of Christmas well. In the bleak midwinter, Frosty wind made moan, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Now Rossetti is not describing here the nativity scene, but rather her own childhood memories growing up in England likely similar to your childhood memories. It's cold, it's snowy, right in the middle of the yearly long winter up here in the frozen north. And yet, in the midst of that bleak midwinter, like a a little flicker of light in the midst of darkness, hope 
stirs. That's what's so exciting. That is the exciting wonder of Christmas. And it's the beauty and the majesty of our text this morning. For 400 years, the divine, authoritative revelation of God through the prophets had gone dark, silent. The curtain of the great drama of redemption had fallen on Act 1 at the end of Malachi, and the intermission had gone on and on and on. And the people of God had asked a question similar to the Israelites had asked after their 400 years in slavery, has God forgotten us? And it is this setting, in that bleak midwinter, that the fullness of time came. And then an angel appears to a young bride to be in, from the middle of nowhere in some nondescript town to announce seismic yet glorious news. This virgin would give birth to the very Son of God. And what could have been received as devastating and, and terrifying and further dark news due to the societal implications of a bride-to-be showing clear signs of pregnancy, Mary responds to the angel Gabriel with remarkable faith. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This news, this news received by such incredible faith. That is the spark. That is the light that begins to grow in the midst of this darkness. And this is a fitting place for us to start our Advent season this morning. This Advent, we're going to be looking at four different songs that mark the gospel writer Luke's account of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. These songs are divinely inspired, beautiful songs that, that just seem to burst out, bubble out of angels and, and priests and simple saints and even the young mother of Jesus, Mary. And it is that song that we will look at this morning. So if you are able, please rise as I read Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. God, would you bless us now, we ask. We, we, we're desperate for your revealing work to be done in our hearts and our eyes. Would you unveil our faces to behold the glory of your word this morning. Would you bless the preaching of this word and may we receive it with hearts of faith. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned earlier, the Lord's divine authoritative revelation had gone silent for some 400 years between the Testaments. 
Of course, we know from extra-biblical accounts and history that even though the prophetic revelation of God was silent, did not mean that God was inactive. Far from it. The sovereign God was doing what he always does, maneuvering empires and nations and kings and, and people in precise ways to bring about his glorious redemptive purposes. And after years of silence, divine and spirit-directed revelation and prophecy begins breaking out all over the place. From the glorious visit of the archangel Gabriel to Mary to announce the birth of Christ, to an angel visiting Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist, something new is happening. The spirit, while never absent, is on the move. And the wintry snow of the people of God is beginning to melt. Incredible. And Mary's song here that we just read, it does not come out of a vacuum. There is a context here that's important. After receiving the, the shocking news from the angel, Mary sets out to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Likely shell-shocked with what's happening and terrified of others noticing the growing baby bump, she seeks comfort and counsel from her beloved cousin. And little did Mary know that a miracle was also at work in Elizabeth's life with John the Baptist growing in her formerly barren womb. Luke describes their greeting this way in verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what has spoken to her from the Lord. It's not overly discreet, is it? But it's this announcement, this announcement, coupled with her astonishing visit from the angel, that's what causes Mary to sing this incredible song that has echoed through the ages ever since. Mary's song is, is traditionally called, and maybe it says in your Bible at the top, the Magnificat, a name derived from the first line of the hymn in the Latin version, Magnificat anima mea dominum, meaning, my soul magnifies the Lord. And the opening stanza of this song sets the tone, or of this line, sets the tone for the rest of the song. After being declared blessed by Elizabeth, Mary instinctively turns her gaze up into the heavens and cries out, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In the original Greek, as well as in the Latin translations, that word for magnify is at the very front. It's the first word, marking its importance. And, and think of what it means to magnify something. This word means to, to enlarge or to, to spotlight or to make a big deal out of something. And that's exactly what Mary seeks to do here. She is overwhelmed by the sovereign grace of God and can only help but express to all who will listen of the magnificence and greatness of her Lord. But notice what it is that's doing the magnifying. It's not just the volume of her voice that is doing the magnifying, as if that's just simple amplification. No, that's simply the fruit of something much, much deeper. John Calvin comments on this passage saying, as hypocrites, for the most part, sing the praises of God with open mouth, 
unaccompanied by any affection of the heart, Mary says that she praises God from an inward feeling of the mind. And certainly they they who pronounce his glory not from the mind but with the tongue alone do nothing more than profane his holy name. The words soul and spirit are used in scripture in various senses. But when employed together, they denote chiefly two faculties of the soul. Spirit being taken for understanding and soul as the seat of the affections. We can learn much from the example of Mary, not least of which is her heartfelt singing from the very depths of her soul. And the reason why she can sing so passionately is because of the object of her song. Notice, not only is she singing praises to the Lord, but she understands that the marvelous thing that the Lord has done in conceiving this child is not the end of his miracles, but the beginning. Notice, Mary's spirit rejoices in her Savior. Her Savior. The child she is carrying is not just to be a king, not just to sit on David's throne and rule forever, but this child will save all his people, including his mother, from their sins. This is the object of her joy. Not some sentimental or fleeting emotion, but her joy is fixed on something much greater than herself, on the majestic reality that this child she carries is the Savior and the Redeemer of God's people. That is what informs, directs, governs her song and her singing. So do we sing like that? When we get together to sing, especially during these familiar and wonderful seasons where well-known melodies and perfectly memorized lyrics just flow out of us, right? Are we mindful of what we are singing? And not just aware, but are we, are we affected by these words? Just listen to these great hymns, these, these Christmas hymns, Joy to the World. Verse 3, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Or the verse 3 from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadow of the night and turn our darkness into light. Finally, verse 3 of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man, no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Don't let these words and countless other songs we sing at Christmas, don't let them just float by in the mist of nostalgia. Cosmic, redemptive realities are at play here. Be moved, be affected by the gracious God who has seen fit not to leave us as we deserve. He has not left us in the winter of our souls. Through this child, this son born to Mary, he has acted decisively against our sin and has brought light into our very darkness. At Emmaus Road Church, we, we love to sing. We love to sing. And the reason we love to sing 
And the reason we love to sing the songs that we sing is because we love the one we sing about. We want to sing of the greatness of our Lord and to rejoice in all that he is and all that he's done for us in Christ our Savior. So, be like Mary. Sing from the soul. As we said earlier, verse 46 and 47, I believe these function almost as a heading over the rest of the song. It sets the tone and it gives explanation to what is to follow. And from what follows, I believe there are three realities that Mary, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes about the incarnation, about the coming of Christ. And with the coming of Christ, we see the first thing. Number one, God sees the lowly. Mary's soul, it it rejoices, it, it magnifies the Lord, and does so in the fact that God is acting to save sinners. That's praiseworthy. But Verse 48 begins with a very important, all-important word, for. There is an additional staggering reality to Mary's experience, and it is the fact that the Lord has looked on her and sees her. Reminder, as we all know, Mary is not some wealthy, royal daughter from some aristocratic family in the metropolis of Jerusalem. She's a young, humble quiet girl from a small town who is betrothed to a good, just, blue-collar man. Not some powerful royal governor or prince. And yet, the Lord has seen fit to execute his majestic plan of salvation through the most unlikeliest means and in the most unlikeliest of persons through a young and humble virgin in the middle of nowhere. And one of the most striking features of this claim is that the Lord sees her, or as the text says, has looked on her. This looking, this, this scene is not simply just some seeing something that comes into your, that your eye catches and you physically look at it, but the word here communicates to, to gaze upon, to, to look attently with concern and care. Second Chronicles 16.9, it identifies one aspect of God's looking when it says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Yes, the sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent creator does have his eye on all of the creation. And nothing takes place outside of his watch. That's true. But there is an intimacy about Mary's verse. God not only sees her in an absolute sovereign way, but he cares for her. He knows her. He, he sees her truly. And, and what a thing to be known by the Lord. Is there anything more comforting, more anxiety diminishing than the promise that even in the midst of my darkness and my suffering, my God sees me? Even when I feel like the tides of suffering are rising, God sees. We've all experienced seasons of of spiritual darkness, seasons where you feel like no one sees, where no one cares what you are going through. Seasons of isolation, seasons where you wake up and you just feel numb. You gather with the people of God every week and might feel refreshed, but the work week and and your kids and your health and, and everything else, it just buries you and you feel like you're sinking. We just finished preaching through the epic tale of Exodus 
Recall all the way back, all the way back to Exodus chapter 2. After Moses had described the horrific conditions that the Hebrews were living under in the tyrannical Pharaoh, and when all seemed lost, Moses pens these words. Exodus 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The cry for rescue from slavery, it came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people. And God knew. To the God who never forgets, seeing is knowing. He sees Mary, and he knows Mary, and he sees you, and he knows you. What a tremendous comfort that should give those who are in the midst of a bleak midwinter. Jesus comforts us in the New Testament, Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. A second reality we see from this song about the incarnation is, number two, God humbles the proud. One of the most striking lines in this beautiful song is that majestic declaration, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He who is mighty, or, or more literally, the able one, the powerful one. He not only sees the lowly, but he acts on their behalf. These great things he has done is first and foremost the promise of this coming redeemer who will save his people from their sins. Yes, but there's more. When the angel Gabriel was announcing the birth of Christ, look how he describes the child to be born. Just a few verses later, uh, earlier in Luke 1.30. And the angel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The child to be born will be a king. He will rule and reign over all kings of the earth. And as Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Once again, consider the ironies, the juxtaposition of this promise. The king, not just of Israel, not of Rome, but the king of kings, was to be born to a lowly virgin and to grow up outside the public eye. And it is in his coming that the proud are made low and humbled. This is exactly like God. This is, just, this is just how he works. This is how he makes promises. This is how he gets such tremendous glory. Like Elijah on, on Mount Carmel, it was not enough that he displayed his power over the false prophets of Baal, but Elijah drowned the altar with water so that if this thing was to burn, it would be from fire from heaven. With one simple prayer, an ordinary man, glory. The same is true here in Mary's song. The upside-down logic of the gospel, it's on full display right here. Listen again to how Mary sings of that great upending that will come with the birth of this 
king, verse 51. He has shown strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Notice, all the verbs here are in the past tense. This has always been how God acts. He uses the humble to bring down the haughty. The Lord has worked on behalf of his people in the past. Yes, he has fought for his people time and time again, despite their sin and disobedience. Yet, he has brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But here in Luke 1, Mary is looking forward. A future, coming, greater exodus. The mighty one of the patriarchs has his eye on the lowliest and is now acting in a way like never before. The king is coming. And all the proud and the foolish and the arrogant kings of the world will cast their crowns at his feet. They will kiss the sun or they will perish on the way. Can you hear and feel the confidence in Mary's voice as she sings? The mighty and haughty will be low, made low when this man comes around. When the king comes into his court, all knees will be bowed. Justice will rule and all enemies will be put under his feet. And the incredible news is that that king knows you and he sees you and he's invited you to his table. Remember Psalm 23, that great psalm. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all my days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This hope, trusting in these promises, they, they can have such a stabilizing effect in our day-to-day lives. The, the total, emphatic, decisive triumph of the Lord over all evil It is the thrill of hope we sing about and we celebrate at Christmas. And it is the hope that Mary sings. So so do you feel that this world that we live in, do you feel like it's broken? Injustice in the world and in your day-to-day life and strife at work and strife at home. Do you feel shadows are deepening around you, feeling like the darkness of your your current circumstances is, is total and that there is no hope? Join in Mary's song and magnify the victorious king who has come to save his people from their sins. One final glorious reality of the incarnation that we can learn from Mary's song. Number three, just simply, God fulfills his promises. It is in the final stanza of Mary's song, verses 54 through 55, that the covenantal nature of the Lord's saving acts is brought to the forefront. The great covenantal promises of old are now being delivered on. The promised blessed offspring announced to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15 is now come. First promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the snake. The one that the patriarchs, the judges, the priests, the kings, the prophets were all looking for is here. And these promises extend beyond just the nation of the people of Israel. It's cosmic in its scale. The mercy Mary sings of in verse 54 extend now to the offspring of Abraham. However, is the hope of Christmas simply or exclusively the hope of Israel? Paul, 
writing to the Gentile churches in the region of Galatia, he answers that question for us. Galatians 3, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. To whom do the incredible promises of the Bible made yes and amen by the growing child in Mary's womb, who do those apply to? Who are to be the benefactors of such great promises? Promises like Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is that true for us? Beautifully in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Who can comprehend these majestic promises? Who, who is sufficient for such things? Through his incredible mercy, these promises are extended to those who share in the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. The one who heard what God said and believed it. He who trusted it so much that he obeyed it. He obeyed his commands. So do you do you trust him? Do you share in that same faith? Are you resting in the finished work of Christ today? We must never forget that in the midst of the joy and the warmth of Christmas, the shadow of the cross of Christ looms in the distance. This baby was born. Yes, hallelujah. But he was born for a purpose. Christ came in order that the promises of God may be fulfilled. And that road runs straight through Calvary. And there is no other way in which we might be saved. In time, the same pregnant Mary singing in Luke 1 will stand at the foot of the cross of her son as he bears the sin of the whole world. Including your sin. Including my sin. And will bear the wrath of God. And yet, he who is mighty truly has done great things for us. By taking our flesh, by condescending and humbling himself so low, the Son of God was able to conquer death's sting. God himself was made low in order that we might be raised up with him, that the poor might become rich and the humble sinners be made righteous that evil would be conquered and, and the wicked vanquished, and that the kingdom of God might be inaugurated and come down to earth as it is in heaven. Do you belong to that kingdom? Do you love this child born of a virgin who, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried? And do you trust the Savior who, who rose again from the dead, 
and is right now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, in whom all authority on heaven and on earth has been given. My friends, do not let this Christmas season, this Advent season, just rush past you without reflecting on the deep, deep joy we have to celebrate. And what is it we celebrate? All that comes from this birth. Tell it to your kids. Tell it to your parents. Tell it to yourself. And trust all that Christ is for you and for me. And rejoice in his saving work. Let's pray. God, we, we want our souls to magnify you. We want our spirits to rejoice in you. We desire it. We long for it. And yet we're dependent on you. But you have acted. You have done great things for us. Holy is your name. God, for those who don't belong to you, who don't trust in you, would you use this season, this occasion, these months, these seasons to save them, to get glory? All of us who in our sin are humbled before you, you have raised us up in Christ. We rejoice in the God who saves. So we're looking to you, O oh God, to, to work in our lives. Would you do that, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.